0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Welcome back, cardio nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember... We are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardionerds. Our mission is simple,
2: to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash every little bit goes a long way and now without further ado let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing
1: cardio Nerds colleagues We are super excited for today's case discussion, a really special case that I think we're all going to learn a great deal from. So very honored to have fellows with us from the Stanford Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. We have with us doctors Natalie Tapasker, Pablo Sanchez, and Jimmy Tooley. Folks, welcome to the show. Really excited for this. Would you mind telling the audience what you're about? Yeah, so we're three
0: fellows from the Stanford Cardiology Fellowship Program. We're incredibly happy to be here on the program with you guys. We've been fans for a while, and we're so grateful that you have us on and
1: so excited to be here. The feeling is absolutely mutual. Pablo, Jimmy, Natalie, would you mind introducing yourselves to the audience?
3: Sure. So I'm Natalie. I'm one of the first-year cardiology fellows here at Stanford. I'm originally from Chicago, and I moved here recently, and I'm loving it here so far, my interest in cardiology is advanced heart failure.
4: I'm Jimmy. I'm a second year cardiology fellow here at Stanford, originally from Tucson, Arizona, and went to school at Yale on the East Coast. I did my residency here, and I love it here. So, my interest is in electrophysiology.
0: And I'm Pablo. I'm a second year cardiology fellow here. I am originally from Venezuela. I did medical school at the University of Arizona in Tucson. I did medicine and chief residency at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, and I'm
1: interested in critical care. So now, Natalie, when we were prepping you guys for this episode and we were saying what you could tell us about yourselves personally, you had remembered that Dr. Joshua Knowles asked you guys during your interviews when you were interviewing for fellowship, if you could bring two things to a desert island, what would it be? And I'm actually really curious, like what for each of you would it be? Because I'm not sure what it would be for myself.
3: Jimmy's not happy we're asking this question but I love these questions so I told Dr. Knowles that I would bring my husband and a helicopter so I could get off the desert island and I think I impressed him I'm here so (laughs) something worked
1: you got off the island (laughs) this is great
2: yeah and Pablo Jimmy you don't even need to bring the uh, helicopter anymore because you could use Natalie's you just need to bring one thing Natalie, Pablo, Jimmy, welcome to the show. This is really a treat for us. We love the Bay Area. We have a lot of family ties to it. So we have drifted there on our magic carpet ride and we're seeing a whole new world from your eyes, even though we've been there. Can you take us to your favorite spot in the Bay Area? It's probably hard to pick, but if you had to pick, take us there and let's talk about a serious case of cardiology.
0: So we're going to take you to get some tacos at this place that we really like called Tacos El Grigliense, and then we're going to go and lay out at the Stanford campus oval and then talk about some cardiology.
2: That sounds amazing. Amazing. Let's get ahead and start with that. Although I will have to say there are some Texans that are going to rival you up with some tacos. So I'm excited to
1: taste these and see what happens. All right, guys. So let's dive in. What do we have today?
3: All right. So we have a great case for you guys. We have a 37-year-old male with L-transposition of the great arteries and double inlet left ventricle who had single ventricle palliation to a Fontan. So that's a lot in one sentence and we already have a lot of teaching.
0: So what is L-transposition of the great arteries, right? This refers to the switching of the pulmonary artery and the aorta such that the aorta is the outlet for the RV and the PA is the outlet for the LV. Now, there are two types of TGA. There's L, meaning levo, and there's D, meaning dextro, and these refer to the location of the RV and the aorta, since they're both on the same side on LTGA. Our patient has LTGA, so they're on the left. Deoxygenated blood returning from the body flows to the right atrium, then the left ventricle, then the PA, and the oxygenated blood from the lungs flows to the left atrium, then the RV, and then the aorta. This results from an abnormality in the looping of the primitive heart tube to the left, leading to abnormal positioning of the ventricles. LTGA is more rare. It's about seven per 100,000 births. And importantly, there's no cyanosis. The blood still flows into the lungs for oxygenation and then out of the aorta, but the ventricles are switched. Because of this, it is also called a congenitally corrected TGA,
1: and patients may be asymptomatic for years. I'm so thankful that you guys are joining us with all these explanations because I just have to say, this is an area of great weakness for me, adult congenital heart disease. And when you propose this case, I was just so thankful because I knew that I'm just going to sit back, relax, and enjoy the learning.
3: That makes a lot of sense, Pablo. Thanks for the explanation. So basically what I'm hearing is that in LTGA, the location of the RV and the LV is switched. So from the RV, we have the aorta coming out of that. From the LV, we have the PA coming out of
1: that.
4: But ultimately, the oxygenated blood goes to where it needs to, and the deoxygenated blood ends up where it needs to as well.
1: So guys, uh, just so I understand this better, pretend we've got the magic school bus with Miss Frizzle, and they are hanging out on a deoxygenated red blood cell. Okay, they just left the capillaries in the great toe on the left foot. Walk me through their path for the typical LTGA. From the foot vein, they get into the IVC. Where do they go next? Walk me through all the way. How do they get back to the foot? So the deoxygenated blood
4: comes up through the IVC and into the RA. And then instead of going into a RV, it actually goes into the LV. And then from the LV, it goes into the PA, to the lungs, where it gets oxygenated, comes back to the LA. From the LA, it goes into the RV instead of an LV, and then from the RV, it's shot off through the aorta to the rest of the body.
1: And it makes its way back to the foot. Perfect. So I'm getting the picture here. Essentially, you have an atrioventricular switch. So the atria is dumping blood into the morphologic opposite ventricle, and you also have a ventriculo-arterial switch such that once the blood leaves the wrong ventricle, it goes back into the right great artery. And therefore, the path of the blood is still uh, how we would imagine it. And essentially, there shouldn't be any systemic hypoxemia. Is that fair? That's a, right. A double switch. Double switch. Love it. Thank you so much.
2: So the right ventricle ends up being the systemic ventricle, and the left ventricle ends up being what the RV was pumping into the lungs. And I would imagine over time, since those ventricles were not originally meant for their jobs... Potentially that could be a big strain on the RV who's not supposed to be pumping to the rest of the body. Whereas the LV is like, yeah, I got this. I was meant to be like a big bodybuilder in the gym and all I have to do is pump into a low pressure system into the lungs.
0: That's right. But not everything is right. And one of the other reasons is that aside from the RV being the systemic ventricle, and just like you said, not meant to withstand that amount of afterload, the other point is that 80% of the time there's an additional heart defect. So there can be a VSD, pulmonary stenosis, and uncommonly there can also be a right ventricular hypoplasia.
3: And actually, in our patient's case, we had another abnormality that we mentioned earlier. Our patient had a double inlet left ventricle.
0: This is a bigger problem. It's more rare. It's about five in one hundred thousand births. It happens in association with RV hypoplasia, and both the atrioventricular valves, so the mitral and the tricuspid, lead into the LV a large VSD, which leads to significant shunting, connects the left ventricle and the RV. About 50% of the time, double inlet left ventricle
1: coexists with LTGA. Wait, so hold on. This patient has LTGA and a double inlet LV. So if I was Ms. Frizzle, getting from the toe into the IVC, I'll go to the RA, and then I end up into the morphologic LV. But the morphologic LV is also getting blood from the left atrium, I'm now mixed up. I came into the morphologic LV with deoxygenated blood. I'm getting mixed up with oxygenated blood that went through the lungs, through the left atrium, and then back into this double inlet left ventricle. But because of the VSD, when the ventricle contracts, how do I know which way I'm going to go? Do I go to the pulmonic artery to get oxygenated? Or could I also go to the aorta and carry my deoxygenated blood to the systemic side. Is that the possibility? That's exactly right. So there's complete mixing of the oxygenated
0: and deoxygenated blood in the LV. And then from there, some of the blood goes to the PA and some of it goes through the VSD and into the aorta. So there are two issues here. One is that the systemic circulation gets inadequately oxygenated blood. And the second is that there's pulmonary overcirculation, And over time, this leads to LV congestion
1: and heart failure this is his most problematic issue, the double inlet left ventricle. Interesting. So the LTGA by itself is not a cyanotic heart disease because the connections are all right. It's just that ventricles are switched. But when you have the LTGA with a double inlet LV, now you have a cyanotic heart disease, but also because of excess pulmonary vasculature over-circulation. I'm curious, can that lead to almost like an Eisenmenger type of situation where you have pulmonary vascular remodeling with increasing PVR and increasing afterload of that morphologic LB? Yes, but usually what happens is that the LV
0: gets congested over time. And so you could get Isomanger, but usually what happens is that the LV gets
1: eccentrically dilated and fails. All right, thank you so much. I, I feel like I understand that much better now.
3: Okay, so to recap, we have LTGA and we have double inlet left ventricle. But let's find out a little bit more about our patient's disease. So he was diagnosed with LTGA and the double inlet left ventricle at birth. He then had pulmonary banding as an infant And then he had a classic Fontan surgery a few months after that. Over the years, however, he had right atrium dilation and arrhythmias. So when he was 14 years old, he had a Fontan revision with a lateral tunnel. So there's a lot going on here and we're finally talking about the infamous Fontan and single ventricle physiology. Pablo, could you explain to us what this means?
0: We finally get to the Fontan and the single ventricle physiology. So if there's no way to repair a double ventricle anatomy, then patients need to be palliated to a single ventricle. Let's briefly go over three steps. First, you need to modulate pulmonary artery flow. Remember we mentioned that you have pulmonary overcirculation. This is done through a shunt or pulmonary artery banding, and it's to find a sweet spot of pulmonary circulation. This is done usually in the first month of life. Second, you start separating the pulmonary and systemic circulations. So now you want to begin the process of having the venous return go directly to the PA. Instead of bringing both the IVC and the SVC flow to the PAs, the gland surgery takes just the SVC and connects it to the PA. This trains the pulmonary vasculature over time. This is done around six months of life. Third, you complete the single ventricle by ultimately connecting the IVC with the PA. This is a Fontan. Now, historically, the classic Fontan connected the right atrial appendage to the PA without the second step we talked about. This led to right atrial dilation and thrombi, so it's not really done anymore. Nowadays, patients get a modified version that uses a tunnel and connects the IVC and SVC to the right PA. This is usually done between ages 3 to 5. Now we're completely dependent on passive flow to the lungs. The cardiac output is augmented primarily with heart
3: rate. So it sounds like the very first step of all this is to modulate our pulmonary artery flow so that we don't have so much blood going into the pulmonary artery. Then the second step is to connect the SVC to the PA directly. So this is training it so that later on when we do the Fontan, the PAs can tolerate higher blood flow. So then the third step is the actual Fontan. So this is now connecting the IVC to the PA.
2: So the reason, it sounds like we have to train the pulmonary vasculature to accept all of the flow from the venous system. What would happen if we did it all at once? What would happen if we did the Fontan right away and we connected the SVC and the IVC to the pulmonary circulation? Why would that be a problem? Yeah, so they used to just do one step classic Fontan, but over time they realized it had better outcomes doing it in a stepwise approach. Did the patients start getting heart failure or right-sided symptoms? Why did they have better outcomes with it?
0: Yeah, so their pulmonary vasculature wasn't ready to accept all that volume of blood. So over time, they became right-sided overloaded and went into heart failure.
4: And these are pretty big surgeries. Remember, these are young kids that are getting them as well. So it's also splitting up into smaller surgeries.
2: Wow, great points. Thank you for educating me on that and going over this. We really appreciate your patience. I'm sure the audience does as well.
1: Natalie, Pablo, Jimmy, thank you so much for taking us on a magic school bus ride through this very complicated anatomy of adult congenital heart disease, status post Glenn and Fontaine, I have to say that I find this very intimidating, but I'm definitely finding it more approachable now. And for the visual learners, we'll include the images of this anatomy that you guys have included within these slides for the audience in the blog to take a look at, because it just makes it so much more intuitive when paired with your explanations. And also just looking at the details of these surgical procedures, you can see how they've evolved over time. And you just have to appreciate the, the innovations and skills and all the research that must have gone into troubleshooting to get us to this point. So this is absolutely incredible. And I, I feel like I'm starting to understand this much better. Thank you. So
0: now we're completely dependent on passive flow into the lungs. Cardiac output is augmented primarily with heart rate. If the preload drops, as with dehydration, the cardiac output falls. If the pulmonary pressures are elevated and blood backs up into the right side, then cardiac output falls again. Sometimes a fenestration can be made to provide pop-off venous blood into the left side. This comes at the expense of shunting deoxygenated blood provides more cardiac output.
3: So to bring it home to our patient, remember he was born with LTGA and double inlet left ventricle. So as an infant, first he had pulmonary artery banding, and this was to modulate blood flow through the pulmonary artery. Then a few months later, he had the classic Fontan. So the classic Fontan is where we connect the RA appendage to the PA.
1: Quick question, Natalie. Uh, Just to understand, with the classic Fontan, the blood still goes from the SVC and IVC to the RA where it can pool. But with the classic Fontan, you just essentially create a connection between the right atrial appendage and the PA. But the downside was since the blood can pool in the RA, it predisposes one to clotting and you can have pulmonary emboli and essentially have stasis, clotting, and emboli. Am I remembering right?
3: That's exactly right. And that's actually what happened to our patient. He started to have atrial dilation and arrhythmias as a complication of that.
1: Oh, interesting. So the complications of a classic Fontan are both, because the right atrium is still part of the circulation you overwhelm the right atrium and still get all the arrhythmic complications of atrial arrhythmias, as well as the pooling leading to pooling of blood within the dilated RA leading to thromboembolism. So the complications of a classic fontan are atrial arrhythmias and thromboembolism. How do you do with the classic fontan anatomy?
3: So because of those complications, there's the modified version that Pablo had mentioned earlier, where instead of using the right atrial appendage as our reservoir, we have a tunnel instead, which connects the IVC and SVC to the right PA, So that will prevent the right atrial dilation, arrhythmias, and thrombi complications.
1: I see.
2: Just a quick thought, you know, with congenital heart disease, it's just so humbling to see how the surgeons and the cardiologists that are taking care of these babies make these decisions. You know, they have the data that's at hand and the fixes that they are working with at the time, but these two changes to the anatomy have lifelong consequences and they really have to use what they've got. You know, it's not like, oh, if you get your valve this year, you get this Taber valve and next year you get the, a different Taber valve and another year later, you'll get the next modification of the valve. These changes to anatomy have lifelong consequences. And so obviously it sounds like at the time that he was having a surgery, the classic Fontan was still in vogue. So how did he end up doing with that classic Fontan?
3: So he didn't do so great with that Fontaine many years later. Originally, he was doing fine, which is why 14 years afterwards, he ended up having the revision to the new Fontan, which was the connection, the tunnel connection between the IVC-SVC to the right PA.
1: I see. So when you do the modified Fontan, you essentially exclude the right atrium from the circulation, and therefore you omit the negative consequences of atrial arrhythmias and uh, thromboembolism.
4: Yeah, so basically he had the lateral tunnel Fontan, so he had a a patch that was sewn in his right atrial so that there's a, just a tunnel from the IVC directly into the SVC, so then that is then attached to the right PA.
1: Incredible. Thank you.
4: And then the one step after that, the, the next evolution of the surgery is a completely extracardiac tunnel, Fontan, where there is just a tunnel that's created from the IVC to the SVC and then into the RA that's outside of the RA.
1: And remember me, what was the benefit of going from like the, the tunnel within the RA to a completely extra cardiac fontan?
4: Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. I think so the, the interesting thing is when the, the evolution of the surgery, they initially thought that you needed a pump to help pump blood into the PA system. And so the RA was gonna serve as that role. With all the negative consequences of RA dilatation, which led to arrhythmia, and also there was actually negative hemodynamics of the blood flowing into this RA as opposed to like in a tunnel. And so those negative consequences uh, far outweighed the benefit of having that extra pump. And so they, they realized it's pretty amazing that they actually can survive with just passive flow into the PA from the systemic vasculature, which is blows my mind that actually works.
1: No, that's super interesting. And I'm just thinking about the the negative consequences of the classic Fontaine. And the one parallel that comes to my mind, because when I don't have a strong background in something, I think about a framework that I do understand, is all of the innovation that's happening in transcatheter tricuspid valve interventions. And one option is a heterotopic, cable, essentially balloon expandable TAVR valve, where because you have this massive torrential TR, what you can do is you can place a balloon expandable valve that's designed for the aortic position, aortic valve position, you can place it into the IVC and or the SVC. So at least the hemodynamic back pressure of the TR doesn't reach, for instance, the splanchnic vessels to cause hepatic congestion, renal congestion, and these comorbid and organ manifestations. But the biggest, one of the biggest issues with that is the right atrium is still exposed to the torrential TR, and therefore you still get uh, the adverse consequences of right atrial dilation, atrial arrhythmias. And, and the ventricularization of the RA, and so I think just thinking about that parallel really helps me make it so much more intuitive why the classic Fontan has a negative consequence. Okay, so our patient started off with a classic Fontan, didn't do so well, and then fourteen years later he had a lateral tunnel Fontan. So what happened next?
3: So our patient had a few other complications along its course. He ended up having Fontan associated liver disease and cirrhosis, but he didn't have any history of protein losing enteropathy, plastic bronchitis or any other lymphatic complications that you sometimes see with Fontan patients?
0: Yeah, and that's important. So you can imagine that if these patients have chronically elevated pulmonary pressures, their are risk of hepatic and mesenteric congestion leading to cirrhosis and protein losing enteropathy. Additionally, because of the risk of cirrhosis, these patients are routinely screened for hepatocellular carcinoma.
3: Okay, so let's keep going. So over the years, our patient ended up developing some sinus node dysfunction or sinus arrest. He also had atrial flutter and complete heart block. He eventually had an epicardial pacemaker implanted in 1997. Then in 2003, he had a syncopal episode, which was felt to be a potential aborted cardiac arrest. So he had an epicardial ICD placed. So this makes me wonder now, what types of arrhythmias are commonly seen in these patients?
4: Yeah, overall arrhythmias are common and increase in frequency with age and congenital heart disease patients. So they account for the majority of ER visits as well. And patients over the age of 20 have a 50% chance of having atrial tachyarrhythmias. Sinus node dysfunction, AV node disease, as well as PVCs and and non-sustained VT are also very common. So in regards to our patient, he has a few specific complications. So like we said, the classic Fontan was associated with dilated RA and subsequent atrial arrhythmias. And these are notoriously difficult to control and can result in hemodynamic compromise. Additionally, Fontana patients have increased risk of sinus node dysfunction, which can also become a big problem as they are very dependent on their heart rate to augment their cardiac output. Separately, an LTGA it's commonly associated with complete heart block. So around 3 to 5% of patients with LTGA are actually born with complete heart block, and an additional 20% will develop it once in adulthood. The most common cause of death in general heart disease is sudden cardiac death. And this occurs at a rate 100 times more than the age match controls. This risk is even higher in patients with DTGA and LTGA. Our patient had all these complications sinus node dysfunction, difficult control, atrial flutter, complete heart block, and suspected aborted DTVF arrest requiring an ICD.
3: Wow, that's a lot of potential electrical dysfunction to think about. So, how exactly should we think about placing pacemakers and ICDs in these patients who have single ventricles?
4: That's a great question. All these patients have unique anatomy, so they require an individualized approach when considering devices. Typically, they've had prior sternotomies. Their anatomy could make access to cardiac chambers difficult or impossible, and given their young age, it will likely outlive their device and possibly require complex device extraction. Additionally, with intracardiac shunts or single ventricle physiology, transvenous devices carry the risk of systemic thromboembolism and would require anticoagulation. Because our patient had a modified Fontan and both an indication for pacemaker, the sinus node dysfunction and complete heart block, and ICD, his aborted cardiac arrest, he'd require atrial and ventricular leads. These are generally done epicardially. The ICD could be epicardial through patches or subcutaneously. So subcutaneous ICDs are relatively new and completely extracardiac. Importantly, it cannot pace or provide anti-tachycardic pacing therapy. So compared to transvenous ICDs, epicardial systems require more invasive surgery; uh, they, compl- they require sternotomy. And lastly, both epicardial and subcutaneous ICDs have a higher rate of failure, oversensing, undersensing, and unsuccessful defibrillations.
1: I just have to say that there's so much depth to the care of the patient with adult congenital heart disease because it didn't even occur to me the complexities involved with placing uh, pacemakers and or uh, defibrillator leads. Right, I'm just thinking about like how do you get venous access if the, both the vena cava are draining into the PA, and if you're putting in leads into the single systemic ventricle, then you have the risk of thromboembolism. It's just again, it just highlights the incredible nuance uh, associated with the care of these patients and the the expertise involved. So really, thanks for highlighting some of these complexities.
2: And this is just a minor point for some of our listeners. Uh, You may be asking yourself, I know that my patients with heart failure have CRT therapy, which means that they have RV and LV pacing at the same time synchronously. And so how does that work? How do you have that LV lead? If you're telling me now that's not normally in the left ventricle itself. And I just, so everybody's on board. In those cases, they actually put that lateral lead on the left ventricle through the coronary sinus. So it's actually going through a venous system and it's actually pulsing that left ventricle lateral wall from the venous side. And so again, you're not actually having a lead in the LV bathing inside of the blood in the LV, because obviously that would lead to complications of thrombus and clot, which is exactly what we're talking here as the problem. So just to make sure everybody's on the same page.
3: So to recap, our patient had an epicardial pacemaker and then had an epicardial ICD lead placed later. He ended up having multiple shocks that were inappropriate with no episodes of ventricular arrhythmias. Additionally, on defibrillator threshold testing, his system was unable to successfully shock him out of VT. This led to his IC therapies eventually being turned off, and the generator was explanted in 2010.
4: So DFT testing is short for defibrillator threshold testing. The defibrillator threshold is defined as the minimum energy at which two shocks can successfully terminate VF. In general, VF is induced, and then the lowest amount of energy required to successfully terminate it is the threshold. Devices are programmed with a safety margin of about 10 joules. The benefit of DFT testings are that they can identify inadequate sensing of VF or insufficient safety margin. Checking DFT used to be a routine practice, but because of improvement in devices and randomized trials showing no benefit and possibly more complications, it is not done frequently anymore. The time where it is still routine are with subcutaneous and epicardial ICD implantations, as well as other high-risk situations like right-sided ICDs and ICDs placed for secondary prevention. Unfortunately, inappropriate shocks are common in patients with congenital heart disease. These occur in about 25% of patients. Frequent causes of inappropriate shocks are sinus tachycardia, SVT, AFib, AFlutter, and NSVT, all things common in congenital heart disease. In addition, inappropriate shocks can happen when your device thinks you have VT, like with T-wave oversensing, electromagnetic interference, or lead fracture.
3: Okay. So at this point, we've talked a lot about arrhythmia, so we should probably talk about some of the antiarrhythmic medications that our patient was on. So he was on Sotalol, 120 milligrams twice a day. He was also on carvedilol, 25 milligrams twice daily, Digoxin, 0.25 milligrams daily, and then other medications included Lisinopril, 30 milligrams once a day, and Spironolactone, 25 milligrams twice a day, in addition to Warfarin, 5 milligrams daily.
4: Just for looking at this list, you start to get a sense of the issues. He's on neurohormonal blockade with lisinopril, spironolactone, carvedilol. so you might surmise some systemic ventricle dysfunction. Next, he is on dig and in addition to carvedilol. From this, you get a sense that atrial arrhythmia burden is probably high, and he is on a sizable cocktail of medications. You should also keep in mind the potential arrhythmic complications from these drugs. First, digoxin. This is probably my favorite medication. It has history, it has controversy, it has arrhythmic complications. So to understand digitoxicity, first you have to understand its mechanism of action, which is twofold. One, it slows conduction through the AV node by increasing vagal tone, and two, it increases contractility by inhibiting the cell membrane-bound sodium-potassium ATPase and indirectly increasing intracellular calcium. Arrhythmia from digitoxin toxicity occurs when either of these mechanisms is taken to the extreme. SA or AV nodal blockade, atrial arrhythmias, junctional tachycardia, and VTVF. Two of my favorite arrhythmias associated with digoxin are regularized atrial fibrillation with complete heart block and a regular escape rhythm, and bidirectional VT, which is VT with an alternating right and left frontal QRS axis.
1: I just Did- have to say that it's incredible to me, Jimmy, that you have favorite arrhythmias. And in the words of Ajay Pillay, hearing you talk about arrhythmias is electrifying. <laughs> Uh, so digoxin toxicity
4: can occur at any serum level but rates are significantly higher with levels above two nanograms per milliliter importantly and possibly the most interesting fact about digoxin is that it is metabolized by the bacteria agrothella lenta which is part of the normal gut flora in about 30 percent of people therefore treating patients with antibiotics can lead to increased bioavailability of digoxin and toxicity Sotolol. Sotolol is a class 3 antiarrhythmic with additional beta blocker properties. It works by slowing the refluorization by inhibiting the delayed rectifier potassium channel. And its side effects include bradycardia, prolonged QT interval, PORSADS, dtvF So for both of these drugs, renal dysfunction can increase the risk of toxicity. Both spironolactone and sinopril can lead to renal dysfunction and hyperkalemia, further increasing risk for arrhythmia. So digoxin toxicity can lead to hyperkalemia as well. Lastly, he is on warfarin to prevent thrombosis from motion along the fontan and because of atrial arrhythmia. So you should keep in mind over and under anticoagulation in this patient as well.
3: Wow, that was awesome. That was a lot of information about antiarrhythmics and digoxin. It's making me really excited for my EP rotation next month.
4: You should be excited.
3: (laughs) Okay, so back to our patient's case. Um, So let me give you some family history. So basically, the family history for our patient was only significant for a maternal grandfather who had premature CAD, complicated by ischemic cardiomyopathy. There was no family history of congenital heart disease. Our patient was married, he had two kids, and his kids had no health issues. He did not smoke or use recreational drugs and drank alcohol occasionally. So now that we have a little more background about our patient, we should talk about his current presentation. So our patient was in his usual state of health and playing golf. While he was running, he suddenly collapsed. This was witnessed by a security guard who found him pulseless and started CPR. EMS arrived within three minutes and applied a defibrillator, which noted fit. He received one shock in the field, followed by one milligram of epinephrine, and then had return of spontaneous circulation with systolic blood pressures noted to be in the 150s with heart rates in the 150s too. They estimated he was down for about five minutes total. He was then taken to a community emergency room where he was intubated for airway protection. While he was in the ER, he was unresponsive to commands despite minimal sedation. His blood pressures were noted to be 120s over 60s, heart rates in the 70s, peripheral oxygenation was 96% while ventilated with 100% FiO2. His labs at that time showed a hyponatremia with a sodium of 127, hyperkalemia of 5.4, a bicarb of 20, and an anion gap of 18 with a lactate of 4.6. His creatine was also noted to be 1, He had a normal calcium of 9.6 and normal magnesium of 1.9. His LFTs were normal, and his INR was 4.5. A peripheral VBG showed that his pH was 7.06. He had a PCO2 of 61 and a PO2 of 49. His EKG then showed an atrioventricular sequential pacing at a rate of 70 beats per minute. The QRS pattern was consistent with RV pacing. He had no evidence of ST elevation MI and the QTC is very prolonged at 571 milliseconds in the context of a QRS width of 220 milliseconds.
0: Okay, so what an awful turn of events. After all these years and having no ventricular arrhythmias before having his ICD taken out, he has now a ventricular arrhythmia. So let's review what we have so far. His hyponatremia we might expect in lot of his cirrhosis and heart failure. He's hyperkalemic to 5.4, as we talked about, we know dysfunction and toxicity from lisinopril, spironolactone, and digoxin may be playing a role. His creatinine is 1.0. Now, we don't have a baseline creatinine for him, but generally these patients are small with low muscle mass, so their creatinine could be well below 1 at baseline, and this may constitute an AKI. His lactate is 4.6, an ion gap of 18, and his VBG had a pH of 7.06 and a PCO2 of 61. Now he had obvious hyperperfusion and lactic acidosis, but additionally, he's not yet compensating appropriately from a respiratory standpoint. You would expect a lower pCO2. Technically, we have a metabolic acidosis, a respiratory acidosis, and a metabolic alkalosis here. With his INR 4.5, we worry about over anticoagulation, but also liver dysfunction. Lastly, his CKG. He has a white bundle branch block from RV pacing, which And the EKG looks a little bit bizarre, but we can think of a left left bundle branch block and does not fulfill Scarbosa criteria for STEMI. He has a prolonged QT, which even when controlled for the QRS width, it is prolonged at 508 milliseconds. This raises concern for implicating Sotolol in his arrest. So in terms of management at this point, we don't have any details on his physical exam, but knowing he's been golfing outside, potentially dehydrated, and that his fontan and single ventricle require adequate preload to provide a cardiac output, he should get IV fluids. Next, we need to adequately ventilate him and compensate for his metabolic acidosis. This can be difficult in profound patient patients since positive pressure ventilation increases intra pressure, which then decreases venous return and then decreases cardiac output. In short order, we should also give calcium gluconate for cardiac membrane stabilization and start correcting his potassium, IV fluids, insulin, defective, knowing that the potassium may be higher on the next check. We should repeat that BMP soon as well. And then another question that comes up is, what about giving bicarb? So with his PCO2 of 61, difficult ventilation, and knowing he'll have to blow off that resultant PCO2, I would think twice before using that.
3: Okay, that makes sense. So next, our patient was given two liters of normal saline. Since his mental status was poor, they also obtained a CT head, but it didn't show any acute intracranial injury nor any acute fracture to his cervical spine. They started a cooling protocol, and then the patient was transferred to Stanford for further care.
4: Okay. Hopefully he's stabilized. At this point, it would be helpful to find out what the interrogation of his device showed. The reason this is helpful is that it can give us insight into the presence of other ventricular arrhythmias preceding this event. For example, was he having frequent episodes of sustained or non-sustained VT, other episodes of VF? How did the episodes start and stop?
3: Okay. So he got a device interrogation. It showed that he had a sinus arrest and complete heart block so he's 100% A-paced and B-paced at baseline. The lead impedance and sensing thresholds were normal and stable. He had several episodes of VF that were recorded at the time of the arrest, but none preceding it. Reportedly, he had a few minutes of VT leading into the VF, but our records of the interrogation only showed strips of VF.
4: Looking through the EGM we have access to, he has way more Vs than As. He has a lot of V-sensed events with short and variable cycle length which is consistent with ventricular fibrillation. Unfortunately, we do not see how it starts and stops, although reportedly he had five minutes of VT before the strip. He is on digoxin and sotolol, had a prolonged QTC, was hyperclemic, and therefore at risk for VT, which rate into VF.
3: Okay, so to summarize, we have our 37-year-old patient. He has single ventricle physiology, prior aborted cardiac arrest, on digoxin, on sotolol and he's presenting with VF in the setting of possible dehydration, AKI, and hyperkalemia. So the differential diagnosis for his VFib arrest includes, one, underlying substrate with prior surgeries and scar leading to VT. Two, ischemia due to accelerated atherosclerosis, paradoxical thromboembolism, or SCAD. Three, sympathetic stimulation, plus or minus electrolyte abnormality, which could lead to triggered activity, or four, medication-induced through digoxin or sotolol. So moving on to what happened to our patient. Once he arrived at Stanford, he was hemodynamically stable, with blood pressures in the 130s over 80s and heart rates in the 70s. He was mechanically ventilated on volume control with a set tidal volume of 400, PEEP of 8, a respiratory rate of 20, and an FiO2 of 100%, and his peripheral oxygen saturation was 93%. His exam revealed facial trauma and scattered hematomas, and he had a regular heart rate and rhythm without murmurs, rubs, or gallops. His lungs had dull breath sounds at the bases and crackles anteriorly. His extremities were warm. He'd only made a little bit of urine on arrival, though. A basic metabolic panel showed his hyperkalemia was worse at 7.1. His bicarb was 19, his anion gap was 15, his lactate was 3.7, and his creatine was now higher at 1.28. His LFTs remained normal. Troponin I was 0.532. And his digoxin level was elevated at 2.7. His INR was also higher at 6.6. His CBC showed a leukocytosis of 20 with a left shift. There's no anemia and he had normal platelets. A peripheral BBG showed a pH of six point nine five, a PCO two of ninety-nine, and a PO two of thirty-four.
0: So on arrival here, we have several issues. Although hemodynamically he seems okay, there are multiple markers of perfusion that are abnormal. His lactate is elevated, potassium is 7.1, which puts him at risk for more arrhythmias. And he's only made a little urine and his creatinine is elevated. Additionally, he's profoundly acidotic. His VBG with a pH of 6.96 and a PCO2 of 99, along with a bicarb of 19 and an anion gap of 15, point to a heavy respiratory acidosis without concomitant metabolic acidosis. Therefore, there must be an issue with CO2 exchange and ventilation. His O2 sat is only 93. With an FiO2 100%, so while presuming adequate bilateral ventilation, so no pneumothorax or unilateral intubation, he has a very low PF ratio and likely a pulmonary parenchymal issue preventing oxygenation. And lastly, his digoxin was elevated at
3: 2.7. Okay, but there's more. So while our patient was only on minimal sedation, he was agitated and desynchronous with the ventilator. He desaturated to 70% and became hypotensive to 60s over 20s. Bilateral lung sounds at that time were symmetrical. Bag mass ventilation improved his oxygen saturations to 94%. He did require vasopressin infusion, though, to improve his blood pressures to 90s over 50s. However, when we attempted to place him back on the ventilator, this was met with further dyssynchrony, and we tried to increase sedation, but that was prohibited by hypotension.
0: These can be very difficult to manage. Here are some things to consider in Fontan physiology. So they rely on passive blood flow from the cava to reach the lungs and then the heart. Normal spontaneous ventilation, negative pressure, allows for easier venous return to the pulmonary arteries. Positive pressure ventilation increases intrathoracic pressure and then decreases venous return and thus decreases cardiac output. These patients are prone to basoplegia and can be sensitive to sedative medications, which can decrease the blood pressure. So generally, small tidal volumes, 5 to 6 cc per kg, short inspiratory times, low respiratory rate, and low PEEP helps.
3: Okay. That makes sense. So ultimately, our patient was on pressure support ventilation with a driving pressure of 10 and a PEEP of 5. He initially had adequate synchrony and hemodynamics. His follow-up ABG showed a pH of 7.36, PCO2 of 57, and a PO2 of 61. Shortly thereafter, though, the team noticed that his endotracheal tube had returned gross blood. The CT of the chest showed gravity-dependent consolidation in bilateral upper lobes suggestive of hydrostatic process and alveolar hemorrhage. He then was given concentrated prothrombin complex for reversal of coagulopathy and hemoptysis thankfully resolved. Over the next few hours, he continued to have further episodes of ventilator dysynchrony. through trials of different sedatives were all met with hypotension requiring vasopressin boluses, epinephrine infusion, and normal saline boluses. Ultimately, further down to titration of pressure support to CPAP of five millimeters mercury led to stabilization of inoconstrictor infusions and maintained hemodynamics. Once his hypoxemia and mental status had normalized, he was safely extubated and his hemodynamic instability completely resolved. His central venous oxygen saturations improved from 48% to 70% and his lactate normalized.
4: Sounds like a pretty active night. in CCU, Pablo. Yeah, there was no sleeping
0: that night.
3: Okay. And then to add to that, of course, we had to do a sat echo overnight. I think we should go through it.
0: Absolutely. So there's a few important echocardiographic features to take away when evaluating Fontan patients. One, is there dysfunction or major structural abnormality in the systemic ventricle? So for him, his single LV was dilated, had mildly reduced systolic function. The posterior wall was akinetic and the lateral wall was hypokinetic. The RV was hypoplastic. In comparison to reports of his prior TTE in 2019, these findings were stable. Two, is there obstruction or stenosis of the fontan? Well for him, it had laminar flow at the IBC and Fontan junction and no obstruction. The fontan and the right PA junction wasn't visualized. But as far as we could tell, the fontan was working well. The last point is, is there any atrial ventricular valvular abnormality? He had malamar, trace TR, and mild moderate AR. This was not different from his baseline. So putting this together, though the differential includes ischemia and infarct, the wall motion abnormalities and overall function seem similar to his prior TTEs. This leaves us with what is ultimately a combination of possibilities, a scar-mediated VTE with degeneration into VF, proarrhythmia due to digoxin and sodal toxicities, and adrenergic stimulation and electrolyte abnormalities.
3: Thankfully, our patient did stabilize and his kidney function improved. So that's when we did a coronary angiogram, which showed no significant narrings or coronary anomaly.
4: So, after multidisciplinary discussions between the patient, family, CCU, the adult congenital heart disease team, and the electrophysiology team, he had a subcutaneous ICD lead placed and was ultimately discharged
1: home. And, guys, I just have to congratulate you on the incredible clinical reasoning you just demonstrated. I mean, you really adapted the differential diagnosis to the unique anatomy and the history of this patient's heart. You taught us that in approaching hemodynamic perturbations here, you're thinking about the function of the systemic LV, the function and patency of the Fontan, and the function of the valves in addition to the more typical considerations. And I just have to reflect that this patient originally presented to a community emergency room. I can only imagine uh, how intimidating this presentation must have been for them. And of course, in the emergency setting, ABCs are still ABCs, but it really is a testament to the unique considerations for these patients and the importance of an advanced multidisciplinary heart team that is additionally adept at managing patients with adult congenital heart disease. And I can just imagine that this entire saga of this admission was so complicated, and you really went through the different possibilities. But it just must have been such a scary time for the patient, for the family, and it's just a whole other layer of how to counsel the patient's family through these very challenging scenarios.
0: Yeah. So this patient lives in a different state and was traveling to California to hang out with friends and play golf. So all of his Uh, records were in a different state. His family was in a different state. And so his family flew as soon as they found out what was going on. And then we met This was a challenging situation, both for the family and the providers that were taking care of the patient. The family, because this patient has been living with this condition his entire life, is very adept and very knowledgeable about everything that has happened to him. So a lot of the information that we got early on, when we weren't able to talk to him and get the information from him, we got from his wife, his mother, and rest of family members. The other added layer of complexity is that he obviously has a very capable and competent team of cardiologists in the state where he usually resides. And so it was hard for him to remain in this hospital, getting to know new doctors and hoping that everything turned out fine. Ultimately, he he agreed and he was very happy with the care that he got at Stanford. But it's it's hard because he was many, many miles away from the team of doctors that usually takes care of him.
1: Yeah, thanks, Pablo. I can only imagine what a frightening time this must have been for the family, but also just uh, acknowledging them for almost being like professional family members of, a, of somebody who's been going through this. So it's incredible how much they were able to advocate for him and really contextualize his background for you. So it's tremendous they were able to be that resource. So at this point, we think that this is probably scar-mediated VT, that degenerate into VF. He got a what was a subcutaneous ICD and was discharged. What was next?
0: So I actually have a personal connection with this particular patient after discharge in that When I was flying back to visit my family members, I ran into this patient in the same airplane with his wife and said hi to him. It was an amazing experience to be able to see a patient that had been so, so sick taking the same flight that I was to go back home. How surreal.
2: Well, that's incredible. I always, you know, when I'm saying goodbye to patients, especially when I'm maybe just a part of their care, say I was part of a cath that they needed or some sort of transient role in their care and I wasn't the primary team, I always say, see you later for coffee or see you later out in the hospital. And I say that and they usually smile and chuckle, but to actually have that happen would be just unbelievable. And I also have had that experience a few times where i saw people out and about and it's almost like i don't even recognize them and they recognize me at first and it's wow i how do i place this person and it reminds us that our patients have lives that are outside of the hospitals and we have to be cognizant of that completely
1: that's so right right it's so um, such an amazing point that we we think and see if our patients in that patient role but then all of a sudden you see them outside and you realize that they've got a whole life. They've got a family, they've got a job, or they have interests and they have an entire life outside of being a patient in the hospital. And to remember that while they're a patient in the hospital is something that I think can be challenging, but it's is certainly useful to try to do, especially when they're critically ill and can't speak for themselves. So I'm glad that you got to see your patient not only as a patient in the ICU, but as a person with his loved one taking a flight. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I wanted to take a moment to recognize what an honor it was to take care of him, to get to know him, that we've learned so much from him. It really has been a privilege both to take care of him then when I was in the CCU and then to prepare this case because it helped me remind myself of everything that I had learned when I was taking care of him.
4: Yeah. So when I think back to my training, I can remember certain patients in certain rooms and what I was doing in the middle of the night, taking care of them and what I learned from them. And it's just really a privilege to get to learn from our patients and experience these really difficult uh, moments with them and, and help them get through them with their family. And uh, clearly, you know, Pablo had that experience with this patient. And we've all got a chance to learn about his complicated disease. And, uh, and hopefully, hopefully this can help uh, other physicians out there someday when they're taking care of these patients.
2: I totally agree. Throughout this entire CardioNerds, case series, Amin and I have been injecting in cases of our own experiences that have really shaped the way that we approach very complicated clinical decision making, deep conversations that we've had with our patients and understanding of pathophysiology and therapies that were definitely critical for us to practice as we do currently as fellows in training. And it means so much to us to bring it to the show and inject it into the show and share those experiences with everyone. And so Natalie, Pablo, Jimmy, Bringing this case to our show today so that we can discuss it, learn so many points and aspects of taking care of patients with adult congenital heart disease, critical care, digoxin toxicity. We've learned so much from this one patient. And so thanks. We really appreciate the time and effort that you spent bringing this patient's story to the
1: podcast. And Dan, if you remember, when we initially introduced the concept of the CNCR, we used the word storytelling. And we said that like so much of education, so much of how we find meaning in things and so much of how we remember things is through storytelling. And just thinking about the story that Pablo, you guys shared with us today, was such a powerful way to learn and contextualize this otherwise pretty intimidating pathophysiology.
0: Yeah, this case holds particular importance to me. Fortunately, we found out a few days ago that our patient had died. And I can vividly remember seeing him the last time in the airport. I talked to his family just a few days ago. And it's, yeah, it just brings into full relief how grateful we should be, how much of an honor it was to take care of him and how much we've learned from him.
1: Pablo, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it's a moment to recognize that the work we do transcends so many of the things that we talk about on a day-to-day basis, right? On a day-to-day basis, we talk about how much time we spend in the hospital or what the schedule is going to look like or whatnot. But this is what patient care is, right? I mean, this, you outlined for us your patient's story from the beginning of life. This is a congenital heart disease course that he's had from a medical perspective. You taught us through one of his probably most challenging admissions in the hospital. And you contextualized him finally as this person outside the hospital who has a whole life in and of itself. And so, you know, I'm just so thankful that we had an opportunity to learn about medicine from your patient's story and also recognize that the work we do is so important. This is cardiology. And I'm just thinking about how you were able to be there for him and during this time and be there for his family. It's a testament to the kind of work you all do together as a team to come around and rally around a complicated patient, do the best you can, give people not only longevity, but also quality. And so I just want to take this moment to ask you guys, why is it that you individually chose to pursue cardiology and what makes your hearts flutter about training at Stanford?
3: So I chose to pursue cardiology for a lot of the reasons that we actually highlighted in this case cardiology is very complex, the physiology is always changing, and sometimes we have logical answers for what's happening, but sometimes we don't. And to solve those problems, you really rely on camaraderie. And I think this case highlights that, um, especially in the Stanford environment. This patient was taken care of by many different fellows, and they were all collaborating throughout hours of the day and night. And the care for this patient couldn't have been delivered the way it was without everyone working as a team. And coming to Stanford means being able to work well in a team and wanting to work in a team. And I've noticed that just being here for a few months, I've never felt unsafe or confused or lost on a call night because I knew I always had my second year to call. And that's a lie. I have felt confused and lost and unsafe because it's hard being a first year fellow. But I've never had a second year not pick up their phone and come help me if I needed help. And I feel like this program really highlights that. And I think even just in preparing for this case, the number of text messages and emails and Google Drive drafts that we had to prepare this to make sure we really adequately honor this patient and the physiology and the teaching and the work that went into it, that just highlights what a caring group of people we have here at Stanford and how everyone here is going to be successful because we help each other out. And I think That just speaks so much to the quality of people that are here, the type of learning that we enjoy, and also speaks to the patients that we have here. We have amazing patients, and they rely on us to help them, but we also rely on them to teach us. And just being a first-year fellow for a few months, I feel like I've learned so much from this patient, and I think hundreds and thousands of fellows will continue to learn from this case for years to come.
4: Yeah, so I love cardiology. It's hard for me to understand why you wouldn't choose cardiology. But I think some of the things that I really like about it is that our patients are really sick. And a lot of times we need to make decisions quickly. And we need to be able to interpret special types of data that a lot of people maybe are not comfortable interpreting themselves. And we can need to make decisions at that moment. And sometimes those are life or death decisions. And I like EKGs. Stanford is a wonderful place to train. I've been here now for six years. It's a place where you feel like anything is possible. The amount of resources available to you are tremendous. You have amazing mentors in both the clinical realm and the research realm. And then the fellows that I get to train with push me on a day-to-day basis and just make me a better person, but most importantly, and a a, a better cardiologist. And you get to live in one of the most beautiful areas in the whole country. Uh, great place. I started my family here. It's a supportive environment and the fellowship and in the residency. And it's just been a, a great place to, to, to start a family as well.
0: I came to Sanford because I wanted to make sure that I went to a place that would allow me to experience a very broad clinical experience that would allow me to get experience in a very broad research environment that would be all-encompassing, that had a lot of pathology that I could learn from and that had uh, a lot of amazing patients that I could continue to learn from uh, year after year. But one of the most important aspects of a fellowship that I wanted to make sure that fit in was the personality, the a place that had a, an incredible amount of camaraderie where you never had to worry alone, where you can always count on your co-fellows or attendings who have your back and where you didn't feel like you needed to make decisions in the middle of the night without being able to ask someone if they thought that was the right call. The friendships that I've made so far during fellowship will be everlasting. And I just couldn't imagine being at a better place.
2: Wow. Natalie, Pablo, Jimmy, this has been an incredible ride. Thank you so much for sharing this powerful story of this special patient and We really want to congratulate you on being able to take a topic that is so often taught with schematics and pictures and diagrams, which again will be available for review, but really turning it into an audio explanation. And you guys did it with so much layer and finesse and really taught me so much during this episode, and I know I'm feel the same way, we really got a glimpse and a good understanding of at least the basic principles behind LGTA with double inlet LV physiology, and then the surgical corrections that take place. This took a lot of work and a lot of thought. And we really are grateful that you did that because this was what we consider a major success. So thank you for that. And thank you for coming to the show. Thank you for having us. It's been our honor.
3: Thank you for having us.
0: It's been a blast. Now for our eCPR segment, we have Dr. Christiane Haefeling. She's our Associate Program Director. She's one of the most personable, calm, and understanding people that I've ever met. She's Medicine and Pediatric Strain She's boarded in structural echo and adult congenital heart disease, and she's the director of the structural echo program here.
5: Thanks, Pablo. I want to start by congratulating Pablo, Natalie, and Jimmy for what I thought was an outstanding presentation and analysis of this case. This patient and his ACHD history are highly complex and nuanced by even adult congenital cardiology standards. To color in the spaces of this case, I think, takes a, a careful hand And they did such a beautiful job of describing how the anatomy of the Fontan patient informs the physiology and subsequent challenges and the complications in caring for these patients. I also want to thank all of our colleagues that work together to care for this patient. Sometimes it, it truly takes a village, and I'm proud to be part of the community we have here at Stanford. And as I think comes through in the presentation we just heard, for those of us who were fortunate enough to meet and care for this patient and his family, His case affected all of us because it showed us both how much we have learned about the care of Fontan patients and how far we still have to go. If we start by looking back to where this patient was on the day he presented to our institution, he was out at Pebble Beach, playing golf, hanging with his buddies, a guy in his 30s working full-time, married, had two kids. From the outside, ostensibly, he probably looked like any one of a dozen people out on the course that day just a young dad out for a round of golf with his friends. But if we zoom out a bit and look at him within a medical history context, it is important to remember that just 40 years ago, children like him with single ventricle heart defects did not survive past infancy, just 40 years ago. Now the worldwide population of individuals with Fontan circulations has grown to approximately 70,000 And nearly half of those are over 18 years of age. Survival to at least 30 years of of age is now achievable for about 75% of our Fontan patients. And not only had our patient survived into adulthood, he was living an active, full life. So within 40 years, we have made tremendous progress within the field of congenital heart disease. We have traveled from a place where children with single ventricles did not survive to even celebrate their first birthday to a place where single ventricle patients can not only survive to adulthood, but can potentially thrive. They can go to school, they can have professional careers, fall in love, get married, have kids, travel. But as this case illustrates, the need for care for the single ventricle patient does not end with the creation of the Fontan circulation in childhood. Fontan patients need lifelong care. As a great example of what this can look like, over at the pediatric hospital at Stanford, uh, the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, we have our comprehensive single ventricle program, which is led by Dr. Sharon Chen. In this clinic, they follow single ventricle patients from birth to adulthood. Um, The multidisciplinary care team, which is one of the few of its kind, includes specialists for both cardiac and non-cardiac issues, everything from Nutrition, to liver and kidney health, to exercise regimens, to school performance, to psychosocial support. They help care for patients through young adulthood. And then in partnership with our program, the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Program here at Stanford, we transition these patients over to our care. And now that we have so many single ventricle patients surviving in, into adulthood, our new mission is to provide new treatment options, better treatment options that will allow them to live long, normal lives. In support of this directive, places like Stanford are leading the way to develop single ventricle research initiatives to improve survival and outcomes anywhere from basic clinical, translational, engineering, and biomedical sciences perspective. In this year, in January 2020, we received a $1 million grant through the Additional Ventures Research Program to help discover ways to improve treatment for our existing Fontan patients, in the hope that one day we can potentially either functionally cure or perhaps even ultimately prevent single ventricle defects from ever occurring. In addition, Stanford has sponsored uh, a single ventricle summit for the past several years to try and identify key research questions in order to drive the next frontier of discovery. Our most recent summit focused on one of Jimmy's favorite areas, on arrhythmias. I'm, I'm not sure if they focused on digoxin but things as well as pulmonary vascular and lymphatic disease and thromboembolism. Some examples of the questions in future areas raised at this summit include things like, you know, what is the impact of body mass index and inflammation on atrial arrhythmias after the Fontan? Can diet modify this risk? Would the routine use of wearable devices allow us to detect arrhythmias earlier, which may help to prevent adverse electrical remodeling and improve outcomes? If we think about areas of research that combine Natalie's interest in heart failure and Pablo's uh, love for critical care medicine, we can look towards the role of mechanical assist devices for Fontan patients. Hospitalized Fontan patients that require inotropes have a, a high in-house mortality. It's up to 20 to 50%, depending on what study you look at. And so a question for this subset of patients is, is there a role for a right ventricular assist device in in Fontan patients, particularly those with normal ventricular systolic function, but abnormal Fontan venous pressures? Can we develop a biobank that would better allow us to understand the phenotyping and genotyping, crucial to elucidate the underlying mechanisms of this single ventricle disease? And then lastly, what is the role of exercise for our patients? Can it help prevent arrhythmias? Can it improve end organ function? What does an active lifestyle for a Fontan patient look like? So as we turn back and consider our Fontan patient and think of him on that day, standing out in the sun on that expansive golf course, looking out towards the ocean as the waves crashed against the cliffs below, the world for this patient is a very different one from the one he was born into over 30 years ago. The innovation and clinical care of the single ventricle patient has been transformative over the past four decades. We have turned this diagnosis from one that is fatal in infancy to a condition that requires lifelong cardiac care but allows patients to potentially live full lives. Over the next 20 to 25 years, the number of patients with Fontan circulations is expected to double. And knowing this, this serves as our call to action for these patients. We must continue to innovate to find better ways to care for them so that the goal no longer becomes survival into adulthood but survival to an old age. And if you are a medicine resident, a medical student, a cardiology fellow, you will see these patients. You will care for these patients, you will learn from these patients, and you will be humbled by these patients. They are a phenomenal group of human beings. We must continue to push forward our understanding of the cellular and molecular mechanisms that underlie single ventricle physiology, and we must discover new ways to prevent and treat this So if you're listening to this podcast and are a yet undifferentiated trainee or cardiology fellow that wants to be at the forefront of everything I've just described, you should come to Stanford. We are always in need of more good people that are passionate about discovery and finding new ways to better treat our patients. And to the hosts and crew of the Cardio Nerds podcast, thank you so much for having me.
4: And now, a message to our audience from our fearless leader, Joshua Knowles, a physician scientist who studies familial hypercholesterolemia. He has been a tremendous advocate for our fellowship, especially in this time of pandemic, and we couldn't have a better person leading our team.
6: Hello, my name is Josh Knowles. I'm the program director at Stanford, where I work very closely with Christiane Haefeli as the associate program director. I really enjoyed listening to that case of complex adult congenital disease. Which really required a multidisciplinary team effort, including the CCU, EP, and ACHD teams. It really highlights many of the things that we treasure at Stanford. You can also see why it's a real pleasure to work with such outstanding fellows like Natalie, Jimmy, and Pablo, who really make my life as a program director easy. I've been asked to talk for a few minutes about why we love Stanford and think it's a great place to train the next generation of future leaders in cardiovascular medicine. First to the basics. We recently expanded our program. To seven general fellows per year, 21 total, we get fellows from all across the U.S. with diverse interests and aspirations. We do not believe in the false dichotomy that you can't excel in clinical care, research, and education, and we strive to make our fellows' dreams come true. But we think you need not only a dream, but a plan, and we work together to make that happen. Our fellows train in two outstanding healthcare systems, the brand new hospital we call Stanford Healthcare, which is a state-of-the-art hospital that opened in 2019, increasing our capacity to a little over 600 beds. Generally, our fellows spend about 70% of their time in Stanford Healthcare. The other location for training for our fellows is the Palo Alto VA hospital, which is located about three miles from Stanford. It is the newest and nicest VA in the country, in my opinion, and it's a quaternary care center and a referral center for all complex cardiovascular care from all around Northern California and parts of Nevada. Like many academic programs, our fellows do two intense clinical years followed by a third year protected research time. During our first two years, our fellows are really hopping. By the end of their first year, typically our fellows have performed close to 200 left heart casts and a large number of other procedures such as right heart casts, transvenous pacemakers. At the Palo Alto VA, our fellows have the opportunity to perform PCI, transseptal punctures, place pacemakers, etc., At Stanford, we typically perform over 125 transthoracic echocardiograms per day. Our fellows get their hands on echo probes early and often and can scan well by the first couple of months of fellowship training. Most of our fellows easily surpass level 2 echo training numbers within the first two years. Our consult service is run by fellows and it is extremely busy. The CCU experience at Stanford is very robust. It is a fellow-led service. Fellows are responsible for all aspects of the care of patients in the CCU from the time they are admitted until the time they leave the CCU, including performing all necessary procedures. All of our fellows get trained on critical care cardiology, including spending time on the VAD service. Our cardiac surgeons at Stanford are both collegial and extremely busy, performing over 60 heart transplants per year with over 1,500 pump cases. Even during this experience, fellows are protected for teaching, which includes both didactic and practical teaching by both faculty and fellows. They have access to multidisciplinary conferences weekly with the CT surgeons and care teams for complex coronary cases and cardiomyopathy cases. There are weekly basic and translational seminars through the Cardiovascular Institute and weekly seminars in inherited cardiovascular disease. We really treasure our fellows teaching and are proud that Our fellows have won the House Staff Teaching Awards for the last three years. After completing general training, many of our fellows go on to advanced fellowships, especially in advanced heart failure, interventional cardiology, and electrophysiology. We also have an outstanding advanced fellowship in adult congenital heart disease, as well as one in imaging. We believe the research opportunities for our fellows are second to none. This starts early in training mentorship during the first year by the second year our fellows have identified both mentors projects and data sets so they can be ready to hit the ground running their third dedicated research year our fellows all get dedicated training on grant writing and have had remarkable success in obtaining their own independent funding we are not dogmatic on the topics our fellows have been doing groundbreaking basic and translational research including in genetics and stem cells outcomes and quality classic clinical research clinical trials And somewhat unique to Stanford, our fellows are pushing the frontiers in data science, wearables, and artificial intelligence in cardiovascular medicine. We encourage cross-disciplinary collaborations. Fellows can work anywhere in their research year, both in the School of Medicine or across campus, and many do develop collaborations with folks in computer science. The talents of our fellows, the innovation at Stanford, and the commitment to mentorship and resources dedicated to research have translated in great success for our fellows, Over 60% of our fellows over the last 10 years have obtained mentored training awards, and we have numerous T32s and funding from the VA to support research. We're also immediately adjacent to the heart of Silicon Valley, and it's that close proximity to venture capital, biotech, and technology that has allowed Stanford to be an innovator in so many areas. Many of the devices and techniques that are used in interventional cardiology and echo labs all around the world were invented at Stanford or by Stanford faculty members. And more recently, that spirit of innovation has been captured in innovative clinical trials like My Heart Counts, the baseline study from Google, and the Apple Heart Study. Our fellows have gone on to outstanding and successful careers. We view our fellows as our future faculty and have managed to keep many of our talented fellows here at Stanford or at the Palo Alto VA but our fellows are widely recruited for other jobs, and we have outstanding trainees that have gone on to tenure-track jobs. Others opt to become leaders in industry, and our fellows are playing integral roles at companies like Amgen, Abbott, Google, Facebook, and Regeneron. Finally, I want to talk about issues of diversity inclusion, which are extremely important to the future of cardiology as we move forward. We believe in an active anti-racist approach, which starts the leadership of our Division Chief Eldrin Lewis, and other nationally recognized leaders in this area, including Hannah Valentine and Fatima Rodriguez. We have a commitment to increase diversity both within our faculty and within our fellowship program. There are also well-documented gaps in cardiology and recruitment, retention, and promotion of women. We're proud of the fact that 35% of our fellows over the last 10 years are women, and that 35% of our faculty are women, including five full professors across all subspecialties. Including two women in interventional cardiology and two in EP as faculty members. In summary, if you want to train in an innovative collegial place, be exposed to all that cardiology has to offer in a brand new hospital with vibrant leadership and a commitment to diversity and inclusion and excellent weather, please consider Stanford in your fellowship journey.
2: What an amazing episode! A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the Cardi Nerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review key take-home points and discussion points and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nashin Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song and Vivian Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedHead mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow Karin Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a ref. Time to make like an S do and split. Beep. Beep.
4: I just want to say Pablo, you didn't want me
2: to put all the Dijoxin stuff in.
0: So.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, literally today I was looking
1: through the through the document. I was like,
0: did you add something else about the <laughs> <laughs> Wow,
1: uh, Jimmy, you really like Jackson, huh? <laughs> yeah.